Let's bow our heads. Our Father in heaven, thank you that you are a wonderful maker and a wonderful God and a wonderful Savior. As we look at some familiar promises and prophecies, may we be in awe and in wonder at who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. May you experience the hope and the joy and the love of this Christmas season that are all available through the grace and the mercy of God. The year was 1940. June 18, to be exact. Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of England, who had been in office for only a month, had to give a speech. You see, there was a crisis going on, and he needed to make a speech to calm the populace. He needed to make a speech to make sure and let them know that, that there was a direction they were headed. He needed to make a speech to let them know that there was hope. The crisis was that World War II was raging. Germany had overtaken Holland, Luxembourg, Belgium, and France. France had signed an armistice saying they would no longer fight against the Germans. They would lay down their weapons. And all the world and all of Britain knew that Hitler's eyes were on the British Isles, laying plans to come and conquer them too. To make matters worse, America had determined to stay out of the war. In fact, they wouldn't join the war for another year and a half. To make matters worse, Italy had aligned itself with Germany, and now Mussolini and Hitler were fighting together against the rest of Europe, planning to overtake the world. There was a strong debate going on within Parliament and within the, on the streets and in the newspapers as to whether or not it was worth it for Britain to pay the price to fight against this war machine of Germany. And so, on June 18, 1940, Winston Churchill gave a speech in the House of Commons to speak to the leaders, to rally them, to fight against the danger they were facing. That speech was broadcast throughout Britain for the citizens to hear. But Winston Churchill also wanted it to reach the ears of Hitler. In that speech, he outlined the events that, they were, that had happened that led them to the, that point in crisis. He talked about the seriousness of that which they were facing, and he talked about the dire consequences that they should not take on the challenge of fighting against Hitler and Mussolini. And at the conclusion of that speech, he said the following. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad sunlit uplands. But if we fail, 
than the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. One of the finest speeches ever given. That speech galvanized a nation. That speech lifted the morale of the troops. That speech turned the tide of the resolve of England to fight against Germany and win. That speech changed history. In Genesis chapter 3, there is a story of a crisis. The world was facing doom and destruction. The universe itself was threatened by the war that had begun in heaven between the dragon and his angels and Michael and his angels. And that crisis had come to earth. Adam and Eve had sinned and were now doomed to death. And in that moment of crisis, God gave a speech. He spoke directly to the snake, that old serpent, the devil. He told the snake that he was cursed. And then he gave the first prophecy and the first promise ever made to this world, all wrapped up together. He did it to let the snake know that while he seemed to be victorious at the moment, he was doomed, he would lose, he was a vanquished foe. He did it to let Adam and Eve know that while all appeared hopeless, God would provide hope. He did it because he wanted Adam and Eve and all mankind to know that he was not asking them to buck up and help fight the enemy. He was not asking them to put up a united front against the enemy. He was not asking them to be part of a solution. He was promising them a victory that he would provide for them because they could not provide it for themselves. He was promising a Savior, his own Son. Look at that first prophecy in promise in Scripture, won't you? You can just listen. You don't need to look it up. I know it's familiar to most of you. Genesis 3, verse 15, the English Standard Version, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You shall bruise his heel. I, I want you to notice that this prophecy is the foundational prophecy of all the Old Testament prophecies regarding the life, the ministry, the death and resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. This prophecy is foundational to every prophecy that would follow because this prophecy outlines both how he would come and why he would come. This prophecy is about God's solution to the sin problem that would be through the seed of Eve. The prophecies about his birth, death, life, etc. are all part and parcel of this brief prophecy. The rest of the prophecies of the Old Testament expand on it. 
As I was looking at this prophecy, one of the new insights I gained this week was that in this prophecy there is the promise of the incarnation and the virgin birth of Jesus. I don't know how I overlooked it for so long. I want you to notice what it says. Not only does it promise that God would provide a Savior who would crush the head of Satan, it also anticipates how the Savior would come through the seed of Eve. Now, we know that so well, we pass over it so quickly, but there's something interesting about this. It is generally believed that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, with the exception of the last chapter of Deuteronomy about his death. Moses wrote it from a patriarchal society. That meant it was a society in which men were important and women were not. He wrote it during the time of the patriarchs when, when, when the men decided what was going to be and the men were important and only the men ch children were important, the boy children were important. What's interesting is that in Genesis chapter 4, he talks about the birth of Cain and Abel and Seth and, and Cain's son, and he mentioned that they were born by, by Eve and by Cain's wife. But something changes in Genesis chapter 5. It's the first genealogy of the Bible, and all other genealogies follow its direction. It says, Adam begat Seth, <coughs> and Seth begat Enos etc. The women are not mentioned. Why? Because the sons born to them were considered to be the seed of the father. <coughs> Excuse me. Notice again what God said in that first prophecy. He referred to the coming deliverer as being her seed. Her seed. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry, fighting a little bit of a cold. <clears throat> it's her seed. Adam is, not re <clears throat> Adam is not referred to or even mentioned. Adam's not referred to or mentioned. Why? Because of the incarnation. In this prophecy is the anticipation and allusion to the birth and death of Christ his birth and death. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. Luke 2, 34 and 35. This is the story of when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple to be dedicated. And in this story, a prophet named Simeon is there. And he steps forward because he's been expecting the Messiah because of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And he steps forward and he announces the following. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through his own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Did you notice the soul will pierce through Mary's heart? Referring back to that foundational prophecy. 
question becomes, how in the world will we recognize the Savior? How will we recognize the one who would come through Eve's seed? That would be all mankind. That would be everyone who would ever be born on this earth would be a possibility for a Messiah. And so there are several prophecies about the lineage of Jesus, a number of prophecies. There is the prophecy that he would be born of the seed of Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 7. But Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And Isaac became the, son, <coughs> the father of the Jewish nation, and Ishmael became the father of the Arabic nations. That's a lot of options for a Messiah. God's not done. God says, my Messiah, my Savior, will be born through the seed of Isaac. Isaac had 12 sons. Those 12 sons would be fruitful and multiply. And the options are still quite broad. So God narrows it down a little more. He says, I will, my Savior will come through the tribe of Judah. Genesis 28, 14. But Judah had five sons who would be fruitful and multiply. Centuries pass and God narrows it down a little bit more when he says King David will be the one who will be the ancestor of the Messiah. You can look that up in 2 Chronicles 17, 12 to 17, Psalm 89, 3 to 4, Psalm 110, 1. And the problem is David had 19 sons. Scope's broadened again, hasn't it? Well, of those 19 sons, Scripture says, according to 2 Chronicles 17, 12 to 17, that Solomon would be the one through whom the Messiah would be born. And we have no idea how many sons he had. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and the rest you can imagine. And so we're back to a large number of possibilities. And so the lineage problem prophecies don't help us a whole lot in identifying who the Messiah could be. And so God decides to go another route. And he makes a prophecy about time. In Daniel 8, 14, there's a 2,300-year prophecy that Seventh-day Adventists know well about. It is explained in Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27, and although it does not mention when the Messiah would be born, it mentions when he would start his ministry in A.D. 27 and when it would, he would die in the middle of the week in A.D. 31. And so we would know roughly the time in which the Messiah would appear. This Messiah prophesied by God to the snake and to Adam and Eve and to us as to the kind of Messiah he would be who would defeat Satan and to how he would come through the virgin birth and through the incarnation. And so now we're narrowing down to a time frame and it gets much narrower as to who the Messiah could be. But then he also told the place he would be born. In Micah chapter 5, verses 2 to 4, But you, O Bethlehem Epaphatha, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, 
From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. That is not referring to a mere man. That is referring to a God-man. Scripture goes on to say in that passage, and I'll just read it for you. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. But if we need it narrowed down even further, other prophecies were given about the events that would surround his birth. There would be the prophecy of Numbers, chapter 24, verse 17, about the fact that a star would appear in Shiloh announcing that birth. There would be the, the event of the death of the infants as, as, portray, as prophesied in Jeremiah 31, 15. There would be the fact that his son would be called out of Egypt, which means he would have to go there, according to Hosea 1, verse 11. Do you see the prophecies narrowing down on the time when Jesus should be born, the place where he should be born? What's interesting about Bethlehem is Bethlehem was a city, a small town. It is estimated that at the time of the birth of Jesus, it may have had as few as 300 citizens and perhaps as many as 1,000. Is there any wonder that there was no room in the inn when all of those who were of the tribe of Judah had to come back and register there? There may have been three, four, five, six times as many people in that town at that time as what the town held. No wonder that poor innkeeper didn't know what to do. But if you stop and think about it, out of all those people that were there, how many children were born on the night the star appeared at the time the Messiah was supposed to come who had the right lineage going all the way back through Solomon and David and Judah and Isaac and Jacob and Abraham and Eve. There's only one that we know of. And if there's any doubt left as to whether Jesus was indeed the Messiah, there is the one other prophecy that leaves all others out. No other options. It's the prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. No other Messiah was born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. When Matthew, when Matthew was trying to, to, to let people know that this Jesus who had died on a cross and was resurrected, that this Jesus who came to this earth, that he came and he fulfilled those prophecies. And so in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 to 23, speaking of, of Joseph, when the angel met him and told him what was going to take place, it says, As he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this, Matthew said, took place. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Please turn, if you already haven't, to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1, page 571 in your pew Bible. I want you to see this for yourself along with me. We take that prophecy and the statement that it was fulfilled in Matthew, we take it to be only about the virgin birth. And this is the second insight I got this week. We take it to only be about the virgin birth to prove that Jesus was born of a virgin. There is a second. That is telling how he came. That, that prophecy of Isaiah 4, 7 also tells us why he came. But you have to follow it closely. Chapter 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack. When the house of David, that would be Ahaz, was told Syria is now in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. You get the picture? Syria and Israel, brothers of Judah, are at war and they cannot beat Judah. And so they make a league with the nation of Ephraim, and now they're arrayed and they're ready to attack. And all of Israel is so afraid of these three united armies that they are literally shaking in their boots, much like England was. They know they don't stand a chance. They don't have enough men. They don't have enough weapons. They don't have enough uh, resources to withstand the attack. Their goose is cooked. And I want you to know what happens next. Verse 3, The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shirashubub. Shirashub. See, pastors struggle over these names too, okay? Your son, whose name means a remnant will return, by the way. And Isaiah means God has saved. Meet them at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field and say to him, be careful, be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Now, that's an interesting phrase. It's a, literal, it's a word that has the word picture of, of some stumps or some wood that's in the fire, but it, it's burned so much of it that all that's left is a few embers on the end of the stick. He's saying, you're so worried about them, and they're just a few glowing embers. They don't have a whole lot left that you have to be worried about. Don't worry about them. And then he says, because Syria with Ephraim, the son of Ramaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, let's go against Ju Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel, symbolizing a false god, Tabeel, as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, 
it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Retzin, and within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people, and that prophecy came true. Now hear the rest of it. In the land of Ephraim is Samaria. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. In other words, if you don't trust me, you will lose. And again, it says in verse 10, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as the heaven. In other words, God tells Ahaz, Look, if you don't believe that I'm going to free you and, and, and deliver you from, the, from this three-pronged army of Israel, Syria, and Ephraim, if you don't believe that, you ask any sign you want. It can be the most elaborate sign. It can be the most outrageous sign. Whatever you can imagine that you want me to prove to you that I'm going to deliver you, ask of it. Now notice Ahaz's response. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary or tire men that you weary God also? If you're going to be telling men that they are doomed, are you telling God the same? When Ahaz said, I'm not going to ask or test God, what he was really saying is, I don't want God's help. I can take care of it myself. Thank you. And his plan was that he would ask Assyria to come in and ask Assyria to deliver them from these three, men, these three armies. And Assyria did. <coughs> and Assyria, Assyria treated Israel, Judah, brutally. <coughs> Excuse me. Ahaz kept his army, kept his nation, but he lost his power. Why? Because he wanted to keep God's, the power of his kingship, of God's people, on his own terms. He didn't want God to save him. He wanted to save himself. This is what blew me away. When Matthew said, a virgin shall conceive, pointing back to Isaiah 7. He wasn't just getting people to see <coughs> that Jesus would be born of a virgin to accept that. He wanted them to see that God was providing a Savior who would save them from sin. They could not save themselves. They needed to accept his salvation. He wasn't just trying to get them to see how the Messiah would come. He wanted to get them see, to see why the Messiah would come. In this old familiar passage that we've looked at, both Matthew 1 and, and Isaiah 7, takes on new meaning, for me at least. Because it serves as a reminder as I celebrate the birth of Christ this season that God has provided the means of salvation that I must accept and I cannot save myself nor can anyone else. So what do we do with all these incredible prophecies that came true? What do we do with all these incredible prophecies that, <coughs> excuse me, that simply remind us that we must trust in God and Him alone? What do we do? I think 
that this is all important for the following reasons. It reminds us that Jesus and Jesus alone fulfilled all the prophecies. Jesus and Jesus alone fulfilled all the prophecies about the birth of the Messiah. It reminds us that the purpose of prophecy is not just to, to answer questions for our idle curiosity. It reminds us that the purpose of prophecy is not just to prove that God exists. It reminds us that the purpose of prophecy is primarily to show us how God wants to interact and intervene in the lives of sinners who are lost and in need of a Savior. It reminds us that the purpose of prophecy is to enable us to trust him because of what he has done for us and who he is. The prophecies of Jesus' birth are important because it builds our faith in God and in the Bible. The odds against one person fulfilling all those prophecies are astronomical. Finally, it reminds us of the certainty of his second advent. It reminds us that just as the prophecies about his first advent came true, the prophecies where he said, I will come again, are also true. The prophecy that said, let not your hearts be troubled, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again so that where I am there you may be also, are just as, as certain as the prophecies about his first coming. And so as we think about the incarnation of Jesus, as we think about his birth, as we think about the virgin birth, as we think about these prophecies, we should be in awe that we serve a God who looked down through history with his divine eyes, his eyes of omniscience. He saw the events. He planned, gave a plan whereby wayward man could be redeemed. And he sent his son be the answer that we needed because we can't save ourselves. When you sing Christmas songs this season, when you open the presents under the tree, when will you take time in all the busy Christmas activities to recognize and to praise and to stand in awe, or kneel in awe, or sit in awe, I don't care what your position might be, to be in awe that the great God of the universe fulfilled his promise he gave to a snake that he would indeed crush his head because he loved you too much to spend eternity without you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your gift. Thank you for the promises which are true and certain. Thank you for the hope of the soon coming of Jesus. Amen.